Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. According to Tim Fitzpatrick's article in the Salt Lake Tribune, in his opening day speech to fellow legislators, Senate President Stuart Adams sounded the alarm for the first time ever. This is really concerning, he says. Last year, Utah used more power than we produced. We must become energy independent once again. Adams' angst largely comes from the fact that Utah's coal production has plunged in recent years and electrical utilities are relying on it less and less. Adams' counterpart in the Utah House, Speaker Mike Schultz, uh, delivered a similar speech last week when he called for more coal-powered electricity to, quote, make sure that we protect citizens inside the state, end quote. Today we're going to talk about energy policy as it's being debated and acted upon at the Utah legislature. Later in this program, we'll be talking with Representative Colin Jack, Republican from St. George, and Representative Joel Briscoe, Democrat from uh, Salt Lake City. Uh, right now, we uh, bring on Salt Lake Tribune Renewable Energy reporter Tim Fitzpatrick. Uh, Tim, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. Good to have you on the program. Um, I was uh, quite interested in, well, all of your recent reporting, but uh, what started all this was your uh, was your uh, story from, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the headline is fact-checked. Lawmakers are right. Utah is not energy independent. They may be wrong that it should be. Uh, so first of all, the, the, the leadership in the Senate and the House uh, are saying that this is a high priority for them, that Utah be energy independent. Yeah, it's uh, energy independence is really uh, I don't even know that it's anything we want in the sense that uh, the nation is really crisscrossed with uh, pipelines and transmission lines. And we pull in oil from elsewhere that we refine and then send the gasoline elsewhere. We make money on that. Uh, It it is just uh, it's a difficult thing for a state to try to seize control of, frankly. Um, and, of course, you know, in this state, uh, we always think that we could do better than any other state. We ought, and we like to challenge the, the federal government. But it really is more of a federal role to handle all the movement of energy around the country. Um, but legislators want to try to do what they can. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the story you talked with Michael Vandenberg, senior geologist with Utah Geological Survey, uh, he's uh, he show you have a graph here which shows that at some points uh, Utah has been a net energy importer and sometimes been a net energy exporter. Uh, just kind of depends on on the era. Yeah, and and again the idea here is that we're not really consuming the energy that we produce. Uh, and we're not producing the energy that we consume. Uh, it is we send oil to the Gulf Coast. Uh, we send electricity to California. Uh, we import hydropower from from Oregon. Uh, we get natural gas from Wyoming. Um, and it's, uh, it's so the whole idea of independence is is um, not realistic, frankly. Uh, you talk to uh, somebody from Utah Clean Energy. They say we're seeing a shift in our energy resources and consumer preferences, I guess. Yeah, and it basically this is, I mean, the, the fallout for Utah is that to some extent this energy change, which is inevitable, is being driven by other states. Um, and for us, for Utah legislators, for Representative Jack and others, uh, the solution is to um, – extend the life of Utah's power sources, which are fossil fuel-based. 
Um, and they're up against uh, not just, you know, legal requirements or pol- politics, but really economics. Uh, you know, the Fortune 500 is moving away from coal power. It isn't, it, it isn't a long-term solution for um, the American economy. And uh, so these guys are, are struggling with that. Uh, so in the story, you you take us through the um, you know where Utah produces energy and where we consume it, um, and so basically it's kind of in thirds ish, right? Uh, coal, natural gas, petroleum, renewable energy comes in at about seven percent. Uh, tell me a little about about coal, our our production, and our consumption. Yeah, basically, um, there, we have two giant coal power power plants, two coal powered power plants in uh, Emory County. Uh, they belong to Rocky Mountain Power, and they provide a lot of power for Rocky Mountain's whole system. Uh, there are times when our coal power is going all the way to Oregon, um, but it also provides, you know, what they call baseload power uh, 24-7 if they need it. Uh, when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining, you still got those coal power plants cranking out. Um and uh, so, but at the same time, California has a law that um, says they're going to stop burning coal, or relying on coal power in 2025, next year. And as a result, there's a big power plant in western Utah, the IPP plant, that's going to shut down next year and convert to natural gas. So all of a sudden, there will be less coal demand there. Uh, coal demand is just falling off for lots of reasons. Uh, there, it's true that they're still building power plants in Asia, coal-fired power plants in Asia, but that's about to peak, too. So if you try to look out 10 years, uh, coal just doesn't look like a good investment. Hmm. Um, and these, I think they're plans to phase out those Emory County plants, right? 2030s somewhere? Right. And that's a soft date. Uh, this is, you know, what you might see, frankly, is uh, Rocky Mountain Power having to push that date out. They have uh, a plan to put nuclear power plants, smaller nuclear power plants down there uh, by 2032. And that seems a little unrealistic at this point to get a nuclear power plant approved and built in eight years. Uh, it's, they have another plant, a similar plant that Rocky Mountain is, wants to build in Kemmerer, Wyoming, that one isn't even built yet either. Um, and so it, it seems, frankly, likely to me that that 2032 date will get pushed back a little anyway. But remember, there's a lot of places to get power. We're, we're building out battery storage. We're building out pump storage. We're building out lots of solar and wind. Um, there, it, it really is kind of hard to predict what the situation will be in eight years. But that's really what they have to do. I mean, it's what the state wants to do. They want more careful planning, and that makes sense. But it's also, ultimately, it's on the utilities to do the planning. And, and they have a 20-year plan. Rocky Mountain has a 20-year plan, and that's, that's part of that. So we'll see how it goes. Now, with the coal, um, it, it, these plants in Emory County, are they, are they using Utah coal? Yes. Okay. They are. And, uh, and I mean, I, I guess it maybe not exclusively. They might have pulled in some from elsewhere, but most of what they burn comes from right around there. Mm. I mean, Carbon and Emory County, most of the mines are in Emory, and, and the active mines now are in Emory and Sevier County. 
Um, but yes, they're they're basically feeding that, and uh, and coal production has dropped in half in the last fifteen years. Uh, you also point out uh, parenthetically that uh, there is a coal burning power plant in uh, Bonanza near Vernal. Yeah, that's kind of an interesting situation. They have they have a plant that sits on the Utah side, but their coal sits on the Colorado side. It's it, they're rural electric co- cooperatives, um, and they provide power all around the state, including I think in Nevada and Arizona, maybe too. Um, but it's basically how the small towns get their power. They all uh, get it from this Bonanza power plant, uh, which also has a life that's going to end soon, and, and the rural co- electric cooperatives have to figure out their next move, too. Everybody's got to get off coal, and, and they know it, but there isn't really, uh, you know, it, I think it becomes a political thing where uh, people say we're trying to get off coal too fast. Um, I guess there are cases where that has happened, but we still have to get off coal. Mm. It's, it's the w- most uh, climate-intensive fossil fuel. And for all the reasons we want to fight climate change, it's, it's what has to happen. Uh, how much of this, uh, this is kind of a general question overall about coal, uh, how much of this is political pressure, you know, that uh, people uh, want to, you know, want to save the environment kind of thing, and how much of this is economic pressure, this coal is just, the prices have just dropped? Yeah, I think, I mean, um, politics and economics kind of move together. Uh, so I think uh, it, there is a political element, but I don't, I mean, again, we can't turn off those coal plants right now. We'd be sitting in the dark in the cold. Mm. Uh, so this is all about what do we do in eight years or 10 years or something. And, and so there's a little bit of kind of false urgency coming out of the legislature that they're in a panic. Uh, but what they're really, you know, if we have, energy problems if we have you know brownouts in the next eight years it's not going to be because we don't have coal plants we still got the coal plants uh and so there's there's time to figure this out um and it won't necessarily be figuring it out by just extending the life of the coal plants and we just joined us we're talking about energy policy as it's being debated and uh and uh, laws being implemented at the Utah legislature this session. We're talking with uh, Salt Lake Tribune Renewable Energy reporter Tim Fitzpatrick in this part of the program. Uh, so what about natural gas? Uh, you, you point out that natural gas provides heat to 90% of Utah's homes. That's how we're using that, providing heat, I guess. Yeah, natural gas, uh, which is, you know, considered the attractive fossil fuel because it is less climate intensive, um, is... Uh, it, we're uh, in a good position, I guess you could say, in the sense that uh, we have an extensive natural gas network. We heat; uh, it's a good heating source. Uh, we use it a lot. Uh, it's relatively cheap. It keeps our heating costs down. Uh, but it's a fossil fuel, uh, and what we're kind of finding now too is all of the impacts related to leaks and flaring and everything else along the line. You can't just look at what comes into a house and gets burned because that's pretty efficient. But if you look at all the leaking and everything else, and remember when it leaks, it's a, it's a worse greenhouse gas. So the impact of, of natural gas is such that it's not going to work in the long term either. Uh, where's our natural gas coming from? Is it coming from out of state? 
Yeah, mainly from uh, mainly from Wyoming. There's a ton of natural gas up there. Some from Utah, uh, but uh, the biggest chunk comes from Wyoming, and it comes through Dominion Energy, which is the company that uh, delivers gas to ninety percent of Utah, or mm-hmm. almost ninety percent. Uh, what about the Yona Basin? Are they producing uh, natural gas, or is it mostly petroleum out there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Basically, usually you find gas and oil together. Uh, and we, just like everywhere else, we have benefited from all the advances in fracking and uh, uh, horizontal drilling. We're producing more oil than we've ever produced in the Uinta Basin. These refineries that are over in, West, uh, over in North Salt Lake can only handle a certain amount of that oil because it's different. It's, got, it's a waxy crude. So most of it is getting driven down, putting on put on rail cars in Wellington, Utah, and, and shipped to the Gulf Coast, where they have huge refineries that can handle it. Uh, that's why the, uh, the, the all those trucks are on that road in Indian Canyon, I guess, from Duchesne over yeah. to, over it's, to Helper. Yeah. yeah, and that's and that's why they want a rail line. Uh, and again, you know, fossil fuels. It's hard to know what their timeline is. But does it make sense to build a railroad for fossil fuels? Uh, maybe so. I, I think that we'll probably be shipping oil out of there for at least another 10 or 15 years. But 20 or 30? Nah. So I guess it's just uh, part of a lot of this is economics, right? A lot of oil being produced in the Yona Basin, but some of it gets shipped out. Uh, in part because you mentioned the, the, the refineries in uh, North Salt Lake can only handle so much. Right. But they can, I mean, the refineries can take, it's because it's waxy crude, it's hard to manage. But the refineries take much more oil from out of state. They got, they got pipelines that are delivering oil from as far away as Canada. So when you're driving around here, you may be driving on Canadian petroleum. Mm. Uh, so I guess the, the, the big point is, um, you know, the, these sources of energy coming to state and out of state, it's export and import. It's a very complicated system among the states. Um, what about uh, prices? Uh, a lot of this is, you know, what what's the cheapest, right? The the utility is is tasked with, I think, right, finding right. cheaper sources. Yeah, and, and that's become an issue in terms of trying to uh, if they try to if legislators try to keep their thumb on the scale of coal, it may not be the cheapest resource. Utah basically uh, is. There isn't really a better state for energy costs. Uh, our natural gas is low. Our electricity is low. Our, our gasoline is not necessarily that low. But uh, uh, it, in terms of, you know, it attracts industry, uh, it's, it's pretty important to us. And, and that's why you're seeing a lot of concern out of, out of legislators about this. Um, but they're still up against a transition a transition that, frankly, they know is going to happen. They're just trying to, to manage it. Uh, what about renewables? Uh, around 7%-ish, right, is what we consume in uh, overall pie chart with renewables. Is that increasing right. over time? Oh, yeah. That's, that's the part that grows. Uh, and, you know, clearly it doesn't grow fast enough. Uh, and that's, you know, the rub. Uh, we can't close our coal plants until we've got enough substitutes, and everybody knows that. Um, and, uh, uh, so, you know, there's a lot of growth. I mean, you, you also have to remember that we're electrifying transportation, uh, in the next 15 years, I guess you'll see refineries close 
because all the cars are going electric, although that's not happening as fast as people once thought. But they are. They're going to go electric. They're going to and uh, and as the, it'll also improve air quality around here too. By the way, uh, and uh, that that's an interesting factor, right? Because uh, that's electricity to power our uh, vehicles has to come from somewhere. Yeah, and it and every utility is facing that. Every utility. I mean, Rocky Mountain Power is a six state system, and they've got lots of resources. Think of the challenges for Logan City Power. Think of the challenges for, you know, Bountiful or Orem or, you know, all these little towns that run their own uh, power systems. They all tried to get together and and build a nuclear power plant in Idaho. That didn't work. They've got challenges. There are things that uh, they, uh, they have to figure this out. Uh, what about production of renewable energy? Is that happening in Utah? What kinds of renewable energy? They are. There is uh, solar panels going up all over the place. Not so much wind. Uh, there is a need for more uh, battery storage, which I think you're starting to see with the solar installations. There's a big one going in. R Plus Energy is doing a big one down in uh, Emory County that will include battery storage. Uh, I wrote something about. Uh, a solar farm that's uh, out by, uh, I guess it's Utah County, kind of out by Camp Floyd. It has 1.3 million solar panels uh, when it starts working in, I think it's 2025. But all the power is going to go to Meta for Facebook and Instagram posts. Interesting. Yeah, it's uh, already already got a source, already got a, a end user. Um, so I want to have you talk briefly. We'll talk more in depth uh, with uh, Representative Jack when we have him on, Representative Briscoe. Um, Representative Jack is proposing a couple of bills, right? And uh, he's, he doesn't use the word coal, I think, in the bill, but that's where it's uh, kind of the concern is, right? Yeah, and it, it basically goes back to what I've been talking about. They, um, they are concerned, and there, there are cases. Um, you know, California uh, pushed pretty hard on renewables and as a result had a couple of uh, times when they didn't make it. They had brownouts. Um, And uh, so that's kind of being held up as an example. Although I wouldn't underestimate California. They're going to figure this out. Um, And, uh, uh, but that's basically uh, why representative Jack is uh, wading into um, managing uh, utilities, which is, which is very difficult. He's an electrical engineer. He's a smart guy. He knows a lot about power. But <clears throat> utility regulation is, is a deep and Byzantine world. Mm. Uh, and, it's, and that's true for every state. Uh, and, uh, and so he's, uh, he's coming up against uh, uh, a regulatory system that has actually worked. It's given us very low-cost, reliable power. So he has to be careful about what he does with it. Uh, yes, another bill uh, which would uh, rewrite the state's energy policy, including re-ranking uh, attributes that legislatures want in energy. And uh, putting some people are complaining is putting uh, sustainability uh, lower on the, on, the, on the scale. Yeah, you know, it's hard to know what that ranking really means. I don't, you know, obviously they're putting in the legislation, they want it to mean something. But if you look at that list of adjectives, you know, it's affordable, reliable, adequate, you know, whatever else it is. 
I don't even know that you need to rank them because you pretty much got to have all of them. Um, there is still, and people can criticize Utah for not moving to uh, <clears throat> clean fuels fast enough, clean energy fast enough, <clears throat> but uh, we are going to move there. Um, in the story, uh, you, you said the bill mentions molten salt reactors producing medical isotopes. This is, a, you say, a nod to the work of BYU professor Matthew Mehmet. Uh, what can you tell us about this? Uh, Dr. Mehmet um, has done some work um, on molten salt thorium reactors. Uh, thorium is close. I think it's a couple of atomic numbers away from uranium. But it is a uh, radioactive element that if you concentrate it, you can get sustained nuclear reactions out of it, uh, nuclear fission. Uh, there's a few advantages. Uh, one is that the products that are produced are not horrible waste that has to be stored for tens of thousands of years. Instead, it's actually some useful things, medical isotopes. The challenge is, is that it has to be done in a molten salt environment, and molten salt environments just rip through pipes and containers and any metal and everything else that it's very difficult to contain. Uh, Dr. Mehmet has done some work to try to remove oxygen from the salt to make them less corrosive. Uh, the uh, Brigham Young University holds the patents on that work. If it ever became, if we, if we ever became a thorium nation, then BYU would make a ton of money. Interesting, interesting. Um, we just have a, a couple minutes left here. I want to move to another story you had recently. Um, there's another bill. This is uh, Representative Musselman's. Um, he wants to uh, study uh, to have a holistic look at what we need for energy reserves. And uh, I guess there is there is a thought that we could use a, a big salt formation near Delta to uh, to stash energy. Yeah, the the salt caverns. You can basically there's a big salt dome down by uh, by Delta. Uh, you can carve it out what they call solution mining. You just wash water down there and, and wash out the salt to carve out a, a cavern. These are a half mile below the ground, by the way. Um, and uh, IPP with the, their new plan basically is to burn uh, hydrogen that they're going to produce from solar panels uh, along with natural gas. Um, and they're storing that hydrogen in these underground caverns. They, they're only taking two of them. There is the potential for up to 70 of them. So, and, there, and there's a private company down there that stores propane and butane and other things underground, too. So there's the potential that Utah could have its own energy reserve down there. Uh, there's a lot of challenges with that, starting with the fact that how do you get it in and out? Uh, and, uh, and, you know, if you're doing this for an emergency, uh, emergency, you know, if it's an earthquake, then it might knock down the pipelines. It might down. It, it, just trying to build out this sort of a thing is, is but all they're doing is studying it. It, it really basically it appeals to Utah's penchant for preparation. It's like storing wheat in the basement. Uh, and uh, so, you know, that's an attractive thing. Whether or not it's practical remains to be seen. Well, we've been talking this part of the program with uh, Salt Lake Tribune Renewable Energy reporter Tim Fitzpatrick. Uh, thanks so much, Tim. Appreciate it. You bet, Tom. Take care. Take care.
Uh, we'll have a brief break. Uh, when we come back, we'll be talking with um, Representative Colin Jack, rep- uh, Republican from St. George. He's proposing a couple of bills uh, dealing with energy. We'll talk with him about that later in the program. Representative Joel Briscoe, Democrat from Salt Lake City. Uh, more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about energy policies that's being debated and acted upon in the Utah legislature this year. And we turn next uh, to uh, Representative Colin Jack, Republican from St. George. Representative, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, so before I jump into a uh, discussion of a couple of bills that you're uh, you're running, uh, dealing with energy policy, I want to talk about your, your day job, as it were. Electrical engineer, I understand, with Dixie Energy, which is a uh, rural uh, energy cooperative, right? Yeah, that's correct. I'm an electrical power engineer, graduated from BYU a million years ago, and uh, and I'm my day job is with Dixie Power, where a rural electric cooperative, and there's five of us scattered around the state of Utah serving the rural areas with uh, reliable, affordable electricity. Uh, so I'm curious, um, I, guess, uh, I guess some of the impetus for the bills you're running here, your concern about this uh, will be probably for just, you know, the, the state in general, but um, some of this might be coming from concerns that are uh, are for the rural areas of the state, I'm guessing. Well, for I would say for the entire state, um, and and even for let's call it for the entire region, here in the West, we're connect we're interconnected through the Western electricity uh, grid, and uh, a shortage of electricity in any one of those states creates a shortage in the whole thing. And since the electricity is traded uh, in well an hour in twenty four hours ahead, but on an hourly basis, any any shortages creates a spike in prices. So even if we're able to cover our own uh, demand, if there's a shortage in California, they might get the rolling blackouts, but we'll get the price spikes, and it costs our ratepayers millions of dollars. Um, uh, Speaker Schultz is, and uh, uh, you know President Adams have talked about um, energy independence within Utah. Is that a goal of yours as well? Well, yeah, yeah, of course. We we I mean, yes, absolutely. And there's not a logistical way to wall off the state of Utah. We're not like Texas. We're not an independent one-state grid. So we want to be energy sufficient in Utah, and we also, in order to keep the lights on in Utah, we have to be able to power the West, which is what we have been doing with our generators for quite a while. Uh, so one of the bills that you're running, House Bill 191, what uh, what would this do? Uh, tell me a little bit about this. Yeah, thank you. So 191 is was an attempt to deal with, at least in a preemptive manner, what we're seeing across the rest of the United States, where uh, areas, states are taking down, prematurely demolishing uh, baseload generation, 
And so what this is saying is let's not tear down what we have until we have its replacement so that we don't find ourselves in the shortfall that we've seen in other parts. You know, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation evaluates the different regions around the country as far as resource adequacy. And here in the West, we're in, you know, code orange, which means that there are a possibility if we have extreme weather, whether it's cold winter or hot summer, we could be short of electric capacity to meet the demands. Uh, in the Midwest, they're in code red, which means that they could be short of capacity even in normal weather conditions. And so we don't want to fall into that same trap. Um, so, yeah, not taking plants offline before you have the replacement. Are, are, do you have in mind what, especially the coal-fired plants, or what, 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 do, you, what do you have in mind? Well, so the, uh, the bill doesn't mention any technologies. It simply says that uh, we have to have an equivalent under different engineering terms. But I guess if we go down to what do we have uh, currently, we do have coal. And what could replace it? Well, I mean, today we know that coal meets those needs. Um, to some extent, natural gas does. So would nuclear. But, uh, of course, nuclear is a real problem as far as getting permitted. We've seen all the struggles they had in Georgia and then the uh, the inability to get the permits uh, at uh, the new scale project in Idaho. So, you know, whatever whatever it's going to be, maybe we'll develop a good hydrogen plant or maybe we'll uh, develop we're working on developing some better geothermal technology. One of those may be the solution. We just don't know what it is yet, but it has to be equivalent or greater than what we have. Uh, there a couple of concerns have been uh, raised, uh, you know, about about your bill. Uh, one is that this may, this from the Office of Consumer Services, um, a spokesperson there said that, um, you know, that may unintended, one of the unintended consequences of this might be additional costs, which would then be passed on to consumers. What do you say about that? Well, um, I say that that remains to be seen. I do have an appointment with them this afternoon, and uh, and I asked them to bring me those concerns. Um, you know, we have the costs currently with the uh, portfolio we have currently, so we know what those costs are. So maintaining those costs until we can replace it, I don't think that necessarily means our rates go up other than just normal rate of inflation. Uh, but if there's some unforeseen consequence, they've promised to come explain that to me. Mm. Uh, Representative Romero, uh, you're likely familiar with uh, one of her objections. She She's concerned, the Public Service Commission, that, that this bill might tie their hands. What do you say well, to that? Uh, so the state legislature is the policy-making board of the Utah government, and so we're not telling them what technologies to choose or what particular brand or company to pick. We're simply saying we need it to be 
uh, dispatchable, available. It needs to be adequate, and it needs to be reliable, and it needs to be affordable. So if if that ties their hands on those, you know, on those aspects, then that's exactly what we want. Uh, you're also presenting House Bill 374. Uh, tell me about this. What would this do? Yeah. So 374, uh, as we worked over the summer, and of course I'm sure you're aware, that uh, these bills get worked on all year ahead of the session. But as we worked through the session, or the summer, excuse me, uh, through different energy topics, um, it became evident to the group of working legislators, both representatives and senators, that our state energy policy, which has been very successful, we have an all-of-the-above approach, and, uh, and I keep saying we want, actually what we want is more of the above, because we're a growing economy. But as we looked at it, um, it had kind of grown up in a, you know, an organic fashion, and, and a lot of parts were put in there. I've put in pieces, and you try to put it next to the thing that it's addressing. But what we ended up with was, was a policy that looks like a runover lizard in that the parts are kind of all out of order and scattered, and you can't tell how they fit. So we worked to reorganize it and put things in a logical order and give them some priority and some some flow from top to bottom. And, uh, and also there were terms in there that have been in there for a long time or some terms that are new that weren't clear that maybe have conflicting definitions depending on who's using the word. And so we added some, some definitions some clarification and just uh, tried to make it more clear. So that was a lot of reshuffling with some amplification and clarification. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Representative Colin Jack, telling us about these bills that you're running and uh, your your concerns and plans for energy at the Utah legislature. Representative Colin Jack, uh, a Republican from St. George, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, and we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking with Representative Joel Briscoe, Democrat from Salt Lake City, uh, talking more about energy policy as it's being debated and acted upon the Utah legislature for this session. More following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about energy policy at the uh, Utah legislature this session. We turn next uh, to Representative Joel Briscoe, Democrat from Salt Lake City. Representative Briscoe, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. I want to ask you, first of all, about uh, the, the overall, I guess, concerns on the Republican side, whether or not you agree with them. Uh, Senator Adams, president of the Senate, uh, says that we need to be energy independent within Utah. Um, uh, Speaker Schultz also uh, echoed those sentiments. Are you concerned about that? You know, let's define energy independence. Um, we certainly don't want to be buying all or most of our energy from other states. We want to have control over producing it inside our own boundaries. Um, we certainly don't want to go so far as Texas which got, has been in trouble in the last two or three years. And one of the problems with Texas was they created their own energy grid and they didn't have substantial connections to energy grids around them. 
So when they got in trouble on really cold days, they didn't have the ability to very easily ask people around them to help. Let me give you a counterexample. Um, Pacificor and other utilities in the Western United States have saved customers, businesses, and homeowners like me millions of dollars the last few years because on hot summer days, we're buying rooftop solar that's not needed in Southern California that they're willing to sell cheaply. So those interconnections between various um, utility electrical utility providers can be very helpful on those days when you need a little extra. Um, if every state were to become energy independent and then say, well, we have to build 20% more capacity for the days in which we're going to be in trouble and we don't want to have to buy it from anyone else, that's overbuilding, and that ca- would cost consumers enormous amounts of money that we really shouldn't expend. I want to get your reaction to um, Representative Jack's couple of bills. House Bill 191 would set up new requirements for electric utilities that want to retire power source. Uh, are, are you supporting this, or do you have concerns about it? I, I have concerns about 191. Um, Pacific Corps announced a few years ago that their re- planned retirement dates for the Hunter and Huntington power plants in every county was, I believe, 2039 and 2042. And one year ago, in 2023, their new plan said they were going to close both power plants in 2032. They moved them up by nine, seven, and ten years. Um, 191 could potentially keep those power plants open for years beyond 2032. 2032 is seven years away now, uh, eight years away now. Um, and I do agree that we need to be planning into the future and and it takes a long time to build resources. Um, 191 talks about nuclear power. I think there could be some advantages to nuclear power. Ten years is like Speedy Gonzales for nuclear power. It's practically impossible to build a nuclear power facility within ten years. Um, they're so highly regulated. Um, uh, we, we need planning, but telling the Public Service Commission that they can't retire coal-fired power plants until there's another nuclear power plant or natural gas plant or coal-fired power plant to replace it um, puts restrictions on Pacificor and uh, seems to be putting the finger on the scale, in my opinion. Uh, Do you think think Pacificor is doing adequate planning to replace those plants? Yes, I do. Um, I mean, they, every two years they're required by law to, uh, they produce an integrated resource plan that they distribute to the six states, to the serv- public service commissions of the six states. Um, you know, people can follow that process, can read those online. Warning, it's 300 pages plus 300 pages of notes. Uh, I didn't get through all 300 pages, uh, full disclosure, but I read a fair amount of it. And I think they've got a, a pretty good take on the future. What about Representative Jack's uh, House Bill 374, which is uh, would rewrite states' energy policy, including raking the attributes that uh, legislators want in energy? What, what do you think about this bill? You, you know, uh, these are some of the concerns the Office of Consumer Services um, uh, mounted yesterday in committee, and I think that um, they brought up a good point. I'm looking at the language on screen, and it says that Utah shall – Shall is a word that is used by attorneys to mean must. You must do this. 
Utah shall have energy resources with the following attributes. And the key issue here is the phrase listed in order of priority. Now, these all were in the law or in the law previously, but they're not listed as priority issues. So here's the priority. Listen carefully. Number one, adequate. Number two, reliable. Number three, dispatchable, meaning uh, solar and, and wind power are not dispatchable. They become more dispatchable with um, energy storage. Nuclear is dispatchable. Coal fire is dispatchable. Natural gas plants are dispatchable. Number four is affordable. Number five is sustainable. Number six is secure. And number seven is clean. So one way of reading this language is that every time the Office of Energy Development gets a proposal um, for a company, a private company, that says, well, we would like to do this in Utah, and we want to bring it online, they have to go through this order. Is it adequate? Check the box. Is it reliable? Check the box. Is it dispatchable? Check the box. Is it affordable? Well, what if it's a more affordable but it's not dispatchable. If we always have to take energy that's dispatchable but not, but might not be as affordable or as clean, then we're saying the only energy that we could develop in the future in Utah is natural gas, coal, nuclear, oil. I mean, that's one way of reading this language. Hmm. Uh, that leads me uh, to, I guess, my next question. It would probably be the last question here. We're running out of time. But um, what about renewable energy? How are we doing in Utah with renewable energy? Is anything you'd like to see improvements there? You, you know, um, Iowa gets 40% of their uh, electricity every year from wind. Um, Iowa's definitely not a very blue Democratic bastion. Um, Texas leads the United States and renewable energy developed. Enormous amounts of wind and increasingly solar. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that Utah could do uh, that New Mexico, Colorado, Texas did was identify the areas where renewable energy, and which includes geothermal, um, where renewable energy could be developed, and then having a plan for where the electrical transmission lines need to go to bring that energy to the Wasatch Front. Two years ago, the Office of Energy Development released a report showing that um, there are going to be bottlenecks. Um, our current power line infrastructure is not sufficient for our future energy needs, and we should be planning for how we're going to do that because those lines take years to permit and approve and build also. We've been talking with Representative Gerald Briscoe, Democrat from Salt Lake City. Uh, Representative Briscoe, thank you so much for talking to us, with us about this. You bet. Thanks, thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. And we very much appreciate Representative Colin Jack, Republican from St. George, for being on with us, and also uh, Salt Lake Tribune Renewable Energy reporter Tim Fitzpatrick. And uh, thanks, everyone, for, uh, for joining us for this uh, program, looking at the 2024 Utah Legislature. Many more programs uh, uh, here at uh, uh, Access Utah on this. Uh, we're talking about this on uh, Morning Edition uh, uh, Weekly and uh, many other sources on Utah News, as, uh, UPR News as well, covering the 2024 Utah legislature. Uh, we'll go next, as we do on Tuesdays, to StoryCorps. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. It's time again for Utah StoryCorps, everyday people sharing their stories at the StoryCorps recording booth in Logan. This week, Kirk Peterson reminisces with his sister Linda about his career and adventures teaching abroad. Kirk, where were you born and raised? 
I was born in Logan, Utah in 1957. I grew up in Smithfield. When did you get to have a, a wider range of being interested in the world? Well, when I was a kid in first grade, we had just moved into our home and we were surrounded by agricultural fields. And I remember going out to the barbed wire fence and looking at the migrant workers. That was probably the first little inkling that I had being interested in other cultures. What happened as you grew older with your experiences? When I was in high school, I started taking Spanish and went on a study tour to Mexico. And that is what really turned me on to wanting to know more about the world. I served a LDS mission. While I was on my mission in the Philippines, I was bit by the travel bug. I started my university studies at USU. I graduated in geography. Well, I went back and got my teaching certificate I was able to have my very first international teaching job in the Dominican Republic. And when I started teaching internationally, it was like I had died and gone to heaven because yes. the kids were wonderful. I taught in Bolivia, Switzerland, Oman, Indonesia, and Saudi Arabia. I retired in 2017, so I came back to Cache Valley and started getting involved with the International Student Program up at Utah State University. And then in 2019, I found out that I could teach in China. And then COVID broke out, and I taught online from my home, and I've been invited back to China. Of all the countries that you had the opportunity to teach in, which one was your favorite? My favorite right now, I would say, hands down, is China. And but, so that makes it even more exciting mm, that you're going back. Yeah. Can you think of any other stories while you've been abroad? Well, one of the biggest things that happened to me was in Sri Lanka. In December 2004, the 26th, it was the Asian tsunami. The tsunami. That day that we went from the interior to the coast, I had the most dark feeling I've ever had in my life. And so I told my Sri Lankan friend, let's move up the coast. And when we moved, that negative feeling left me. A couple of days later, we were eating breakfast at the beach when the tsunami hit. Oh. And we both got washed away. The important thing is that we both survived. I attribute listening to the Spirit and being guided by God. Wow, so, thanks for sharing that. You know, you've seen me come and go. What are your thoughts about seeing your older brother have all these <laughs> adventures? <laughs> I feel like I was an armchair traveler. It sparked an interest in me to get out there and experience what's beyond our little valley. Bottom line, what do you feel like you've gained living and teaching around the world? I think it has broadened my horizons. It's made me very understanding. It just makes me realize that the world is a big, beautiful place with fascinating people. Do you feel like you would love to be able to connect with any of those students? When I was teaching, I tried to impart a strong sense of helping other people. And in 2019, I was able to return to the Dominican Republic. 
In particular, I have one student. He graduated from top universities in the U.S. and was working in Wall Street, and he just found that that hectic way of life was very shallow. So he decided to go back to the Dominican Republic, and he started a company called Solo Coco, and he has now become the biggest coconut producer in the Caribbean. He's made it his life mission to help bring single mothers out of poverty. He hires these women to work in his processing plant. He really took to heart those lessons. Yeah, it's like a ripple effect. As far as I have watched as you've taught throughout your career, you've been able to experience more in your life than anybody that I know. Well, thank you, Linda. You're welcome, Kirk. Support for Logan StoryCorps comes from Cache County and from USU Credit Union, a division of Golden West.